This is the UK House Builder and Developer from Good to Great series with Gerard Ball, Managing Director of Human Capital Group, helping you build your UK house building teams and businesses fast. We find the top 15% of talent in the market by harnessing the power of big data, 24-7, 365 digital automation platforms and inbound strategies. Leveraged by 20 years successful mid to senior level recruitment experience. Gerard is joined this week by Henley Homes CEO, Tariq Usmani. Well known for its design-led approach on work ranging from volume multi-storey apartment blocks to conversions of landmark and listed buildings, Henley has been developing homes in London and the South East for over 20 years. As an entrepreneur, Tariq has led his team from an SME to a private PLC, with Henley investing in gaining control over the supply chain. It therefore has its own construction arm with an in-house architectural practice and other vertical businesses, including a growing and award-winning portfolio of city centre hotels. In this podcast, Tarek talks about how he found his way into the residential property market, his charity work mentoring former offenders, and why for him, efficiency is a key driver in heading a happy team and delivering great detail and design for all. Hi, Tarek, and welcome to the UK House Builder and Developer Good to Great series. Thank you. Thank you, Gerald. Let's dive straight into the, the interview. Before Henley Homes, where did your interest in residential development come from? So I think um, my interest in residential development was almost by kind of accident. It's not anything that I ever really set out to do. At school, I was academically bright, very bright. And I grew up at a time when Racism was very rife in this country. Right. And uh, people of my ethnicity, Paki bashing was a national pastime. Right. That then took me over into an area where I went from doing sort of 13 O-levels at school. Because um, <laughs> by the time I left school, I only had one, oh. which was done kind of about a year early. Um, I went on to do A-levels. Right, okay. Um, economics accounts. But by that time, I'd kind of lost focus. I think from... From my Asian background, my parents uh, would have probably wanted me to be much more educated than I actually am. <laughs> my father was not a bus driver. Mm. He was a, um, he's an academic, came to this country to do his PhD, very educated, very educated, very pragmatic man. So I kind of, uh, I was married when I was 18. My elder son was born when I was 19. I didn't actually do anything until I was about 22. Is this like the 80s? This is the 80s, yeah. Right, okay, yeah. So... After my A-levels, I didn't know what I would do next. Um, but one thing that I've always really been interested in is just the detail, the finish, the design. Perfection is a, is a big thing for me. Efficiency is a big thing for me. So for some reason, um, I did a painting and decorating course. And then... Um, <laughs> Your parents were happy. <laughs> my father was not happy. And, um, and he used to routinely tell me, do you have to dress like that when you want paint all over your clothes? However, um, that's what I did. It. I really enjoyed it. I loved going into a property that was quite dire. And by the time we'd finished, it was right. um, really, really well presented. But, you know, I kind of worked out that there's no real money in painting and decorating. Right. It's very limited. Um, from that, we kind of moved over into building people's extensions. I kind of realized very early on that um, I think when we built our first extension, I didn't, I didn't even know 
how you would dig out foundations, but I kind of realised that, or right enough to realise that um, I don't need to know everything, I just need to know people who do. Was this your business at the time, or you, were you working for someone? I've never had a job in my life. Oh, right, so when you went into painting and decorating, this was... This was... This, was, you, this was you, okay. This was me with the, with the sitting guilds and, and lots of unrealistic expectations as to what I might do with painting and decorating. Right. <laughs> So I built extensions for a while and then quite quickly um, realised that there's not much money there, yeah. um, certainly not for me. And I think that's where we kind of learnt a fair amount. I surrounded myself with people that knew much, much more than I did. Right. And that's kind of how I've learned, really, just by people that are cleverer than I am. Mm. And that continues today. I'm surrounded by a lot of people that are really clever mm. and I learn from them. Out of interest, you, you were doing the painting decorating, you, you moved into you know, doing, doing the extensions, etc. How did you start networking with the individuals who, who could do the foundations, who could do the brickwork and the structural side? So I came across this Scottish guy. I won't give you his name, but I came across this Scottish guy. He's an alcoholic, but he was really, really good. He just understood the building really, really well. So he kind of put his arm around me and, and kind of helped me through it. Um, and even now, if you meet him now, he'll say that I made that man. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so he'll still tell people he, he made that man, you know, which is... Which is you know, in many, many ways, very, very true. Yeah. Whereas that was my first understanding of what construction and refurbishment right. and conversion was, was really about. And I really enjoyed it. I, I really enjoyed the, the programming element, the procurement element, just the way that you could have concurrent processes. Right. And the tighter you made those concurrent processes, the more efficiency you built into the process. Okay. So for me, everything was around efficiency. Efficiency for me is like uh, it's like poetry for me. You know? Right. As, as, as tight as I can get it, and still be able to deliver the quality which I want to deliver. So that's been my sort of key driver for mm. pretty much everything that, that I've ever done as far as um, as far as business is concerned. You know, how do I get it tighter and tighter? How do I get it more efficient? And how do I let people leave at five thirty rather than having them sit here burnt out at ten o'clock in the evening? Right. And I think the only way in my opinion, that we can ever get back time is just through efficient processes. Okay. So for me, efficiency is really exactly that. It's, it's, it's poetry. Very hard to achieve in a very highly collaborative environment where collaboration is not necessarily what comes, um, uh, what comes naturally to most people. So this has been kind of, this is part of your, your being, the focus on Absolutely. efficiency. So from building the, the extensions... Would you class that company as Henley Homes, or is Henley Homes was was, was that a separate entity? No, it was, it was a very much a, a separate entity. And how I started was just really placing an advert in the local paper, and I was happy to take home sort of forty or fifty pounds a day building <laughs> extensions. So of course, yeah. I was the cheapest extension builder out there. Um, <laughs> but was it around? Was it around the London area? It was all, all, all in London, yeah. and we did a lot. We mm. did a lot um, because I was cheap. Right. And then the only way I can make money at it, or at least pay myself, was by being quick. Right, okay. And then I thought that good business principle, if you're good at what you do, then other people will ask you to do it. Right, So yeah. I, I think I became good at what we did, and mm. then other people asked me to do it. Okay. But then when you work out that in actual fact, um, you need much more money in order for this to work as a business, and then you start competing with other people. Mm. on a level playing field and I realised that this is not the place I really want to be you know it right. was just it had to be too intensive for okay. us to for it to be meaningful it had to be just way too intensive from that I went on to I managed to save some money 
and we bought our first flat in Collier's Wood at the Island Marcus Auction. Two-bedroom flat. We understood sort of construction by that time. We'd done a few refurbishments and conversions. Um, so when we, when we went into this, um, it was quite simple. Right. I paid £33,000 uh, cash, <laughs> and I spent £8,000 in cash because you could right. buy things in cash in those days. And then we sold it for 53000 I thought, this is a lot of money. Right, yeah. Um, but then I realised that I've got to do about four of these a year. Um, I can only do really four, realistically speaking, about four a year. That will give me about £40,000. And <laughs> demoralise it. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> so the economics weren't really going to work out, you know. Yeah. So yeah, that that that's um, that was the beginning of that was the, that was the beginning. Then we started. Then we started getting into volume. Then we started started getting into bank finance. Right. Um, and then we started getting into larger projects. Let's just work out where Henley is at the moment as a company and kind of what you're doing and, and what the area is. And but then I, I do want to go back to. Both single units, how you suddenly jumped up into multiple units? I think it's, um, one is obviously basic economics, and mm. the other one is boredom. I can't stay doing the same thing for very long. Right. I get quite agitated. If I've done five units or 10 units, I'm thinking about 20 or 50, just simply because I need the challenge. My brain um, really needs the challenge. And if I'm not being challenged, I get really bored. Okay. So from the, the single units, what was the next evolution of? And the homes. So we've done multiples of single units yeah. um, side by side. Um, we did a lot of work around South East London, Peckham, East Dulwich, All right, okay. Deptford, Forest Hill, mm. Broccoli, because you could buy houses there at that time, derelict houses for £40,000. We couldn't work in places like Kilburn and West Hampstead, it was much, much more expensive. Right, okay. Um, so we chose South East London, and that's where we've kind of stayed in, even though I'm from West London. But that's kind of where we've stayed. So we've always stayed in southeast or southwest London. Mm. And then you went from the single units. How did you, what was the next biggest project away from the... I think what happened was that there was this kind of huge, how would I, how would I describe it? This huge push from the average Mrs. and Mrs. Brown who right. had now had equity in their property and they could actually go out there, take some equity out of their property and buy a, a, a small house or a flat yeah. in order to do it up. So, you know, sometimes ignorance is, is, is a really good thing because mm. it means you can go and buy things um, at a price, being ignorant of really what the realities are. Um, for people like us that know what the realities are, we can't buy at the prices they could, they could purchase them. So people right. that we all of a sudden started competing with was not our, not the people that were our real competitors, but all of a sudden we started competing and buying houses with Mr. and Mrs. Brown who okay. would then carry out the works using their friends in the evenings and the weekends. Mm. So that was kind of like in the mid kind of 90s, 97, 98. And we just decided that before this gets to a point where we just can't buy anything at all because we're pricing ourselves out of the market, right. that we would change direction and start going into new build. And by that time, I understood what concrete was. I understood what foundations were. So that mm. was a little bit of a, I suppose we had a little bit of a head start but the first thing that we bought was that we did as a new build was three flats in Peckham. And um, it, was a, it was a corner plot. I can't remember what we paid for it, um, but we built it. And ceiling heights on the first on the ground floor were really good. Right. Ceiling heights on the first floor were really low. And it was a bit awkward because we were in a loft on the top floor. <laughs> we had no architects. We just drew it ourselves. And, right. we, just, and we just built it ourselves. And, and we sold it. So that's not how you should be doing it. 
but it, it, it kind of worked really, you know. So, um, and then you're going back to my, my, my previous question. So, so where is the where is the company at the moment? What's what's a, what's a typical development for Henley? So, for us, the volume is we where we are most competitive, and so a typical development for us would be above 100 units. Right. Okay. Um, anything below that becomes difficult mm. just from the economics. Um, you know, I've got some very clever, intelligent, and expensive people in this office. Yeah. And um, I've got to kind of see how the time is best utilized and volumes where uh, I think it's best utilized. Mm. Um, and I think that we do best on volume as well. So, yeah, so a typical development for us would be 100 plus units. Okay. What's the, what's the average sale price of a unit? So from our perspective, we want to stay at, at as low as we possibly can, mm. which is quite difficult. Um, mm. So if I could sell everything at £400 a square foot, I'd be really happy with that because right. I think that's the, the lower end of the market. is the end of the market that will always move. Right, yeah. Um, so I would say that we're typically from about 600 to about £950 a square foot. Right, okay. Um, if, if I could bring it down to £500 a square foot, I'd be, I'd be happy with that. Difficulty that we have is based upon our need to produce a really good product, yeah, that drives a certain cost. And when you look at your purchase price versus your build cost versus mm -hmm. your exit price, you know, you can't easily, you can't really work at 400 pounds square foot. It doesn't work. The cost of construction is too high. When I look, look around the different developments in, in London, I, I look at Henley developments. They're very design driven as a product. Did you move into that or was that... You did touch on it at the beginning, I guess. You know, is, is that something that's very important to you, or is that reading what the market is after in in like you know the, the Dulwich and the Peckham? You know, these are all big up up and coming areas. So, design aspect is driven by my own need to not become bored with what right. we're doing um, and not to become complacent. So we want to drive design and detail. I think de design and detail are really really important, but I don't want to pay for it. So right. I want to come up with innovative ways of creating a detail or a design using the same money because ultimately your exit value doesn't change. And we are in a very, very competitive market because the people that we would sell to mm. are the same people that would go down the road and look at developers that are 10 times our size. Yeah. So we're actually competing with people like that and our product has got to be competitive, not just only in price, but specifically in, in design and detail. In terms of, you know, getting the company to, to where it is at the moment, what have been the biggest challenges that you've faced? I, I think it depends on how you describe a challenge. So a challenge for me is what I really want. I really want challenges, otherwise I get bored. Right. Um, so if there isn't a challenge, I'm looking for one. And sometimes, that, generally speaking, that's just doing stuff a bit mm. more volume better than what we've done before, at a, at a better profit margin than we may have achieved previously, at a better quality of finish, okay. at a faster program, a faster sales rate. Mm. Um, so all of these things are, are, are the challenges within our industry. And it just depends on, on whether you see them as a challenge or whether you, as a challenge or a problem, mm. or whether these are things that you're actually looking for. So I never want to stand still. So we're constantly presenting ourselves with challenges and, and my people are constantly presenting with challenges. This is what we want to do next. Right, okay. And it's difficult to say to me, no, we can't do it. It's not really <laughs> terminology that I accept easily. Right. 
try. And I think I know what we can do. I think, you know, but it's difficult to accept that there's something that we can't do that I think that we've got the ability to do or something. I think sometimes people just need to broaden their horizons and just challenge themselves. Okay. There's a bit of political uncertainty, May. Uh, hopefully, by the time this goes out, maybe December, January time, some of that might, might be a little bit cleared up, maybe not. So 2008, 2012, obviously a big challenge for, for everybody within, within the marketplace. Uh, and everybody's experiences the same problems. The Henley Homes have obviously come out the back end of that and, and been a, a successful and possibly more robust company because of it, because you have to become more efficient to, to deal with these things. But in terms of when, when that was happening, what was motivating the, the staff, motivating yourself, motivating the company? What was going through your head and, and what did you do specifically to make sure that the company came through those choppy waters? So I think the, the recession was a very difficult time, mm. uh, without, without a doubt. As a business, we imploded, you know, because we've got, I think at that time, we had about 230 unsold apartments. Right. And in a market where no one's buying apartments. Yeah. And there was a distinct period where people could get a mortgage on a Monday, and mm. by Thursday it's been rescinded because the rates have changed. Mm. So there was just no market for sales. We weren't highly geared, so that helped us in terms of our negotiations with banks. I don't give personal guarantees, even though banks at that time would have liked us to have given personal guarantees. So they felt that they would fund the developments to completion if we gave a personal guarantee. My view was that why would I strengthen your position and weaken mine? Mm -hmm. you, know, you need me to finish these. And if you feel that you can do it better, then here you are. Okay. And of course, they, they can't do it better. It's, it's a lot of bravado. Um, but I think that once people become sensible about what we need to do, mm. then my view was that, um, look, I can deliver this. Um, I can finish this. If you will, fund it in the way that you said you're going to fund it. Um, but we're breaching covenants because nothing is selling. But that's not my fault. Mm. But you, as a bank, lending to people at a, at a, a loan to value that you probably shouldn't have lent to. It's nothing yeah. to do with me. I'm very, very vanilla when it came to funding. We worked with the banks and it took me about three and a half years. We paid back 52, 53 million pounds worth of debt, 100 pence in the pound. Right. No one lost money because of us. Yeah. But because we weren't highly geared, everything that was eroded was not just the profit, because that was gone on day one, but really a lot of a great part of the cash that we built up over the years that just evaporated right. between 2008 and about 2012. Right, okay. So I remember coming out of the recession with about £900,000, and that's all we had. And I remember one of the banks asking me that, you've got nothing coming out, so why would you do it? Mm. You know? And my view was is that this is like, you know, the turnover is like the blood that pumps through your veins. Yeah. The second that you stop it is the second that you die. So for me, as long as I've got turnover, I, the only thing that I need then is time. Time to reposition ourselves, uh, time to work out what the landscape is at that moment, mm. and then look at how we're going to approach it. So at that time, we didn't have any money. Um, so that then drives innovation. Right, okay. Nobody had any money. So we were very innovative mm. um, in the way that we bought. So we bought a lot from local authorities. Right. We bought on subject to planning basis, and we delivered it. So when we came out of the recession, we had a pipeline, mm. we had a business, uh, we didn't have much money, but mm. um, that's what we had created alongside dealing and with the banks and paying off the debt and selling whatever else we had to sell at the time. 
at huge discounts, mm-hmm. we were at the same time busy building a business kind of concurrently because you can't do one. And then when you finish paying off everybody, what do you do, what do, you do next? Right. Yeah. So that didn't make much sense. So we run it concurrently and, and fortunately um, that was our route for survival. So in terms of ending homes moving forwards, what, what's your goal for the business? I think I've kind of got to a point where I think I want to take a vaccine. Right. I think I've, I've done my years. Money was never really a driver for me. I think it's a facilitator of many, many things. You know, we come from quite a basic background. And my father was an academic, he was a teacher. There were seven of us, so we grew up with not much. That's not a hard luck story, that's just the reality of, of what it was. Mm. And I know how difficult it was for us to work our way through painting and decorating into buildings, people's extensions, and then yeah. building our first new build with odd ceiling heights right. and finishes. Um, so I know how difficult that was, but it was driven by pure determination. Mm. And also when your back is up against the wall and you don't know how to do anything else and you've got no interest in anything else, then you, it's, it becomes do or die. And I suppose I've always kind of operated in, not from a financial perspective, mm. but we just need to move forward yeah. rather than just kind of settle and be happy with, with achievements. I don't look backwards and think, look where we were and look where we are. I, I just never have the time to look backwards because mm. there's always something more challenging in front. Mm. So... Short answer is, is that I think I'm looking at the exit. From a legacy point of view, I'd like the business to be here in 300 years' time. Otherwise, everything that we've worked uh, to put in place doesn't have much of a value unless it survives us. Mm. I think that we're very focused on those people that don't have and how do we help those people that have got determination Mm. but just don't have the mechanism or the ability due to a variety of different circumstances. I think it's harder now, possibly, than it might have been at our time. Maybe because at our time I was a little bit ignorant to the realities of life. I remember a time when I, I, I didn't know that my VAT return had to go in on time and customs and exercises they were called at the time froze my bank accounts. I don't know what that means. Um, so I had to go and see them in Croydon and ask them to release and, and they, they did. So we're coming from that kind of lack of knowledge, lack of understanding, probably quite stupid. And I'm thinking there must be lots of other people out there that have got that, you know, and I wish that someone had shown me that well, this is the accountant you should be talking to, and this mm-hmm. is how you would build your business, and this is what a business plan looks like. And this so, is- just just on that on, on that note, then to help those people out, what? And I've spoken to lots and lots of chairmen who, who do want to take a, a back seat. Many find it a big struggle, but where 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 could you put your time and invest your time? You just touched on a few points there. Part of my time already is, is in the charity space, right? I think I've got something to say. I've worked for the probably last 16 or 17 years with people, young people, not always just young people, but people that are either on their way to prison, right. in prison, or um, have just come out of prison. Yeah. I think that's quite a difficult sector to work with, but it's a challenge and you know, it goes back to my original thoughts about what is a challenge. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think I've ever liked doing things which are easy because... Um, as I said, I get bored. I think over the years I've probably mentored about 26, 27 young ex-offenders. Right, okay. Uh, not a single one has ever gone back to prison. Not mm. a single one, to the best of my knowledge, that has ever reoffended. Right. Numbers of them have passed through this business. Numbers of them are employed within the business. 
uh, numbers of them have worked, have passed through and are educated, they've gone to university, got mm. their degrees, some have moved on, some are still here. So I like that. I like the idea that above and beyond, you know, being able to have a, a reasonable income, that we've managed to use that income for the benefit of others rather than just saying, well, actually, I worked hard and therefore that belongs to me. Mm. But I know plenty of people all around the world that are working hard and they're working hard just to put food on the table, yeah. where I've worked hard and I've got more than food on the table. Mm. And I think that that means that I'm fortunate and blessed in, in many ways. And I just feel that that doesn't belong to me entirely. I think it, it's something that I should be sharing with those people that I believe would do something with it. And the only thing that I've ever asked anyone to do is that, look, you know, if, if, if I help you and I get you to a good place, because it's not difficult for us to do, because people that are coming out of prison, they just want their dignity. Mm. Um, that's the most important thing for them is their dignity. And dignity is normally derived via honest income and a career and progression and help and support when they're wobbling because they do wobble, especially in the first few months, uh, first couple of years. Right. If I give them that, and the only thing I've ever asked of them is that, look, when I come across somebody and I think they need a bit of help and support, as long as you're prepared to do it, mm. I, I don't really need anything else other than that. I think that kindness heals a lot. Yeah. So whatever they've done, they've done. Okay. Um, and I think people change. Life changes people, and I'm not here to moralize or make judgments about why people did what they did. Right. As long as, long as I can understand where they are at this moment in time okay. and where they feel they need to be. Just um, a couple of closing questions, really. You know, you've been in the industry for quite some time now. Where, where do you see the industry in 15 to 20 years' time? Do you, do you think it will have changed much? Or? I think the construction industry is, is, is very slow in changing, maybe because uh, the reason why people are so good at what they do mm-hmm. is because it's repetitive. And the second that you try to take away something that people are good at doing just purely because of the repetition aspect of it, that's when people start becoming uncomfortable. So I think where the industry is going to be, I think off-site construction, as much as can be manufactured in a factory, is where I think it is at. I think right. that's where we've been for about 13 or 14 years. We've been building using lightweight steel frame for probably about 14 years, right. okay. um, just when just because I kind of understood that anything that I can do in a factory and I can avoid the human content on site, that is just much, much more efficient. And it's driven by that need for efficiency and shortening of the program. So we invested in a lightweight steel factory about five years ago. Oh, right. Okay. Um, so that provides, you know, that build, everything that we build up to 10 floors is built out of that and has been for 13, 14 years. That's quite easy for us to do. Um, it also supplies to others in the industry. Right. But it, for us, it's, it's a facilitator for our business. Mm-hmm. And there are a number of other vertical businesses that are just facilitators so that we can get control over our program and to a certain extent get control over our destiny. Right. And okay. that then is, again, is driven by this whole concept of efficiency. Mm-hmm. You know, how quickly um, can I get onto site? How quickly can I build? How quickly can I sell? And, and how efficient is that entire process? Mm-hmm. And very importantly, what's the quality of the product that we, um, that we produce? And someone once asked me that, you know, do you not have customer satisfaction surveys and mm. you know, do you not monitor what you're, who you're selling to? And I said, yeah, I mean, I, I like the idea of that. I think it's largely academic because mm. I think good, decent people will always give you a glowing reference. Mm. Horrible people 
we'll always say horrible things regardless. So mm. I think that, that, that can't be the acid test for us. I think the acid test for us is, is what did I actually, what did I actually spend in the aftercare? Right. You know, that will tell me how well I built it because if my aftercare bill is zero, right, okay. it must mean that nothing's gone wrong. If it's hugely expensive, then obviously it's <laughs> hardly efficient and it's hardly quality. And <laughs> my reputation is going to be hit quite hard. And then just, just finally, if, you know, if, if we did have a time machine, you go back in time. Is there a moment in your career that you would go back to and what advice would you give yourself? I think that's a, it's a really good question. It's not something that I've, um, I suppose, given a great deal of thought to. I think we've made so many mistakes along the way. Mm. And just so many. I think anyone that says they haven't made any mistakes is, is telling lies. Right. From, a, from another planet where people don't make mistakes come from. I think if, if we had... I think or, if, or, 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 if, or if it's difficult for yourself, you know, if, if somebody else was coming into the industry or thinking of starting their own business, how in-house building, what would you, you know, what are the, what do you, what the key lesson would be the key lesson? So, I mean, the route that we took was construction because obviously we started kind of on site. So when people, people have come to me and said, you know, this is what they're thinking of doing and, and they're going to put together a small team and they're going to manage that team. And I'll, my advice to them is I wouldn't do it. I wonder, you know, the management of people within the construction industry is not an easy task. Um, I would advise them, and I have advised them that you're better off finding a small builder right. and just working alongside him. Um, make sure you pay him properly, because otherwise, three quarters of the way through, when he's worked out, he's not going to earn any money. He, you'll, you'll have another bill that you'll have to contend with that you may not have the money for. Right. So that's the route that I would say. In, if I was really clever, that's probably the route I would have taken. Right. Because the cost of infrastructure um, in maintaining volume development is quite expensive. Um, and when you get um, situations such as the recession and even Brexit mm. um, uncertainties, that infrastructure is not working as hard as it should work. Mm. So if I look back at what we bought over the last two years, um, even though we've got a healthy pipeline of 800 odd units going forward, but that's only appeared in the last six months because for the last previous two years or so, the uncertainty in the market was that I know what the exit price is because I know what the price we're selling at. Mm -hmm. But when we're buying, the people that are selling land or buildings or whatever it might be, they, they, they haven't quite understood yeah. that the market has actually taken a turn for the worse. Right. So they're still trying to sell at the prices that they think that it's worth uh, because they're convinced that's what it's worth. Yeah. People like us, and there's many of us, uh, we know that that may be the price that you think it is, but the exit price is very different. So that's created um, a lag in the market. And most people that I know are just sitting on their hands and just waiting. So for people like us that got large infrastructure, what do you do? Um, for us, we took a decision that our core competency is construction. Mm. So we're just going to start building for housing associations. Right, okay. Or the, the alternative um, response would be to go and buy anything mm. in order to keep the infrastructure busy. Um, but we took a route that um, what we're doing, we'll just, we'll just um, sell our services to others that can buy at a reasonably decent price. Right. So that, that's what we've done for the last uh, year and a half or so. Tarek, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Jeff. Cheers. Thank you. Discover how to build your UK house builder business and attract the top 15% of leadership talent using one-to-many platforms. 
automation and 24-7, 365 proven digital strategies before your competition. Be sure to subscribe for more podcasts from the Good to Great series, featuring leading voices from the UK housebuilding industry, from small to medium businesses to leading PLCs. Don't forget to rate and review so that we can continue to bring you the best content possible. For more information, call 0203 800 1080 or check out www.hc-group.co.uk and book a client or candidate blueprint strategy session.